It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, it's Manveen. Today, we're bringing you something a little bit different for Bank Holiday Monday. Just over a month ago, Stories of Our Times shone a light on the remarkable story of a painting. A painting of such historic significance that there was a public campaign to raise £50 million in donations to buy it from its private owner. It's in part thanks to that campaign that just over a week ago, it was announced that the painting will be saved for the nation. Today, we're revisiting the story about the portrait of Amai and why it's so significant, told beautifully by my former colleague, David Aronovich, and the art historian, Ben de Grosvenor. Open your mind's eye. It's a big picture. It's a full length. And Omai, who was the first Tahitian to come to Britain, sat to uh, the artist Joshua Reynolds in 1776, thereabouts, and you will be seeing him in all his Tahitian glory. So he's wearing an almost entirely white and cream sort of series of robes and a turban. Omai oh sounds magnificent. He's sweeping through a landscape, and it's a tropical landscape because behind him are a couple of what look like palm trees, and he's very much in command of his space, and Reynolds is presenting him as this Slightly exotic, but very much a commanding presence. Reynolds is Sir Joshua Reynolds, one of the most important artists produced by these islands. The 18th century picture is one of the first portraits where the sole subject is a person of colour. The chances are, however, you'll never have heard of it, let alone seen it. I love this kind of thing, but I never had. That's because, for almost 18 years, it's mostly been in storage somewhere in the country. And over those years, several attempts have been made to stop it from leaving the UK. In Britain, we have quite strict rules about the export of cultural works of art, especially if they're deemed of national interest, which this was immediately. You're listening to Stories of Our Times and the Times and the Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, the portrait of Omai, Britain's first grand portrait of a person of colour and the risk of losing it forever.
I'm Bendel Grosvenor. I'm an art historian. I used to be an art dealer. And if I have a specialist expertise in uh, art history, it is probably British 18th century portraiture. Where did you see the picture? I saw it when it was uh, on loan at Tate in 2005 for an exhibition, a monographic exhibition of Joshua Reynolds. I think from memory, the title of the show was The Cult of Celebrity or something like that. And I think that's quite pertinent here because Omai, or Myers, he was called. When he came to Britain, uh, he was uh, a huge celebrity and everybody flocked to see him. And one of the people who was slightly taken under the spell was Joshua Reynolds. Now, tell us a bit more about Omai, both his background and also how he came to be in Britain. Uh, He was born about 1753, we think, on an island part of the Society Islands called Raiatea. The main island in Society Islands is Tahiti. But one of Captain Cook on his voyages, his second voyage, ended up in Tahiti. And Omai... Uh, signed on to one of the ships. He was signed on as a, a, a rather curious name called Techebi Homi. And that may be where the sort of the Omai oh comes into the, the equation because he was actually called Mai. One of the reasons we think he signed on to the voyage is because there'd been some dispute with his father in Tahiti and ended up losing his family lands. So he was slightly dispossessed. And then Captain Cook takes him to Britain and he becomes this sort of great specimen. One of the uh, the backers of Captain Cook's voyages was the botanist Joseph Banks, Joseph Banks, who collected all those specimens to help found places like Kew Botanic Gardens. And Omai becomes a sort of human specimen and is toured around. Uh, tell us a bit more about that touring around. Maybe paint a little picture of what the Britain of the 1700s when he came over was like for him. It sounds rather glib to start off, but he must have found it quite cold damp, curiously, very much class-bound. That was the dominant kind of ordering of society back then was class. People in Britain would not have seen someone like uh, Mai before. Um, as I say, he was the first Tahitian to come to Britain. There had been uh, people of colour, obviously, for some time, mainly Africans, because obviously Britain at this point is very heavily involved in the slave trade. But Mai was, was not, a, he was not a slave. He was not quite held up as a sort of a chief or prince, but because his father had land, I think the Brits found that he fitted into their class structure a bit more easily. And so he was toured around. He was introduced to George III. George III apparently took some great interest in him, made sure he was inoculated against smallpox. And then, as I say, he was taken Mm. under the wing of Joseph Banks and introduced to people like Samuel Johnson and so on. And what did he spend his time doing, do we know, apart from meeting kings and queens? Good question. He became this sort of object of wonder and focus. And I I think the Brits, as perhaps we tend to, viewed his presence here entirely through their own prism of interest. So he becomes a sort of subject of discussions, which we might come on to later about the question of the noble savage. But other people like Granville Sharp, who was famous uh, later as an abolitionist, a missionary, they spend their time trying to convert him to Christianity. So everybody tries to sort of impress what they feel is the best aspect of British society on him. Granville Sharp didn't get very far. You mentioned there how he fitted in to the discussions then about the noble savage. Tell us a bit more about that. This was the idea, I mean, put forward in Britain early in the 17th century, in fact, trying to get to grips with the idea of whether civilization 
made human beings civilized, things like law, society, class structures, or was man born civilized already in his natural state? So John Dryden writes a little ditty which goes like this, actually. I am as free as nature first made man, ere the base laws of servitude began, when wild in woods the noble savage ran. So my becomes a sort of specimen for people to discuss these sort of rather esoterical philosophical discussions about. And of course, what nobody in Britain quite manages is to have any discussion at all about my perspective in all this and whether someone from, from the South Pacific might have different views at all. Yes. Keep quiet while we're talking about you. <laughs> yes. And Samuel Johnson dismisses the whole thing and says, well, he's only um, civilised because he spent all this time with people like us. <laughs> That sounds very Johnsonian. <laughs> Let's talk a bit now about Joshua Reynolds. Now, he is one of the great subjects of your studies over the years, Bendor. How good an artist was Joshua Reynolds? Well, I'm biased because, uh, you know, I'm very much um, at home in the British 18th century art world. But, but Reynolds, I think, is amongst the best artists Britain ever produced. He's right up there, but quite possibly the best, actually. He is the person who takes British art out of something of a rut in the earlier 18th century and elevates it and actually puts it on the international stage. So we have had in British art history islands of brilliance before, Obviously, in the 18th century, people like William Hogarth, and the 17th century, people like William Dobson. But for various reasons, they don't quite break through internationally or into the upper echelons of sort of British society. But Reynolds does. He's a good politician as well as a great artist. And he brings to British art something which he called the grand manner. And that was this sort of blend of the very best that uh, Italian and European art had to offer combined with a certain sort of, I don't know, we might call it a British or English, quotes, honesty of approach. So, for example, a great Reynolds portrait, which this portrait of Omai definitely is, it gives an impression of character, a sense of movement of someone walking through a landscape. They're definitely there, they're real, as well as a, a, an honest representation, I think. Obviously, notwithstanding, we may come on to discuss the, what Reynolds does with the costume. But you can still look at the portrait and strip away everything and see Omai as a real person. And that is something that very few artists in Britain, in fact anywhere, can actually infuse into a, a 2D painted surface of just literally pigment on a piece of canvas and make someone come alive like that. Now, you said that he was intrigued by Omai. Is that the reason he painted him or was he also commissioned to paint him? Because this was a man who could fetch quite a lot of money for any one of his paintings, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, people were queuing outside his studio in Leicester Square to be painted by him. Such was the demand for his services, because he managed to sort of create a template for British upper classes to see themselves within. And of course, everybody wanted to be presented as, as, as a Reynolds portrait. But uh, it's interesting that Reynolds don't think he's commissioned to paint this portrait, because it's in his studio and he dies. But it, it does look like Reynolds painted this for his own curiosity, one of the things that makes Reynolds great is he's, he's really an experimenter. He's always pushing the boundaries, trying new pigments, new compositions, new everything. And I think he would have seen Mai as, a, as an almost irresistibly experimental subject. Well, why would that be? Is that, would it be because of the, say, the, the hand is heavily tattooed, isn't it? Uh, would that be part of the reason? 
Imagine you're Reynolds and you're painting countesses and, count and earls every day. Goodness, it must get rather dull, painting the same bit of ermine <laughs> repeatedly <laughs> and the same kind of disdainful British look while you're just waiting for this, this ordinary artist to get over and done with as soon as possible. But some like my, everything's new, isn't it? Obviously, there's skin colour, but costume, setting, everything different that the subject might want to bring to a portrait. Reynolds just sort of would have seen it as a chance to do something new and different. So let's talk about the costume now, because I don't think that's any costume that's ever been worn in Polynesia, but I might be wrong. And so uh, Reynolds has chosen that particular kind of costume. Tell us a bit about that. I think actually, just from looking into it a little bit myself, there, there is some similarities with Tahitian costume, particularly, I think what they call mourning costume in certain settings. So this sort of the white robe and the kind of creamy cummerbund, I think is actually what someone like Maya would have worn. And uh, don't forget that Reynolds is a really amazingly good painter of drapery. He's always good at getting the folds of silk and satin and all these things. And I think one of the things that's interesting, when you look at this portrait, some of the white drapery is quite bulky, especially that sort of creamy cummerbund across his middle. And in Tahiti at the time, they were often making clothes out of bark cloth. And so it's slightly rougher and it doesn't hang as loosely as something like a silk or a satin would. And I think you can see that in this portrait, actually. So in part, it is a fair reflection of what someone like that might have worn. Mm. But where it goes very much off-piste is the turban, which is absolutely not appropriate for someone from that area. And I think Reynolds, he probably just couldn't resist going all in <laughs> on this <laughs> idea of making someone look completely exotic. I wonder if Maya said, what's this thing you're sticking on my head, <laughs> Reynolds? <laughs> but then as ever, as you said, people weren't listening to him. So what year was the painting completed? Some of the years, Reynolds' sitter books have gone missing. He was a very diligent recorder of who came to him and when. But frustratingly for this sitter, the, the years are missing. So we think for that reason, around about 1776, 1777. Right. Now, you said that the painting was in his studio when he died. So he hadn't sold it. Tell us when he died, when that was, and then take us through the provenance so Reynolds dies in 1792, and then all his portraits in his studio get left to his niece. And they have a series of sales, and the, the portrait of Mai appears in 1796, where it's bought for £105 by the 5th Earl of Carlisle. The 5th Earl of Carlisle lives at Castle Howard, where the portrait then remains for... Oh, what, the one from Brideshead Revisited? That that's Castle the one, Howard. Yeah, up on the Yorkshire coast. The fifth Earl of Carl was obsessed with having himself painted, <laughs> particularly by Reynolds and people like Rumney. He sits to pretty much everybody. And I think he might have thought that this was a good foil to all endless portraits of himself. Um, <laughs> so, so the portrait uh, then stays at Castle Howard until it's sold in 2001 at Sotheby's for £10.3 million. Coming up, how does the painting get from 200 years in the stately home in Brideshead Revisited into the possession of an Irish racing magnate? And where might it end up next? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, we get to 2001. It's in Castle Howard. It's been there for a very long time. And then, who decides to flog it and why do they decide to flog it? If you're running a place like Castle Howard, you've got bills, big bills, all the time, as well as, I'm sure, I don't know in particular, but a lot of taxes, death taxes, that sort of thing. These vast houses are fueled by cash. They consume it at a vast rate, so that, that must be the reason why they sold it. I can think of no other. Now take us to the moment when it gets sold and tell us a bit about that sale. I think the estimate is about, the upper estimate I think was 7 million and it makes 10.3 million with premium. So it, it goes a little bit above what was already a punchy estimate back in 2001. And it's bought by an Irish billionaire, John Magna, who's best known as a racehorse owner, has a famous stud called the Coolmore Stud. And what do we know about him as a person? and his interest in this kind of field. I think he's quite private. He's not one for the limelight. So I don't think we know, or I certainly don't know a great deal about him, but he's a noted collector. So this is not a sort of a strange thing for him to buy. He has, as all these billionaires in Ireland do, he has a fine house that requires items to be put in it. And this would have looked very good there. So he buys it 2001 for significantly more than people thought it would go for. Now, what has happened to the painting while it's been in his possession? John Magna applies for an export licence. So he would have applied after he bought it in 2001. But in Britain, we have quite strict uh, rules about the export of cultural works of art, especially if they're deemed of national interest, which this was immediately. And when he applied for an export licence, the government said, no, you can't have one because this is a work of preeminent national uh, heritage, and we'd like to give an institution, a UK institution, the chance to buy it by uh, raising the money to keep it in the UK. So uh, Tate managed to do that, actually. It was extraordinary. They got one single donation to do it of about, I think it was about 12 and a half million, because in the intervening period, the price already went up a bit. And John Magna did decide then that he didn't want to sell it. The rules have since changed, but, but back then you could decline a matching offer. But the fact that that meant that you then couldn't have a permanent export license. So in theory, the picture had to stay in the UK. And what Magna did to at least have it in Ireland for a bit is he applied for a temporary export license. And for that reason, the picture was on show in the National Gallery in Dublin. But then then the picture comes has to come back to the UK uh, in 2011. It was only a six-year license. And then I think there was another application in 2016 which was refused. He, he tried for another temporary application. And the government said, this looks like you're trying to get around the export license rules if you keep applying for a, a temporary export license. So we'll say no to this one. And thereafter, it's been in, um, yeah, been in storage. Like most other countries, the UK has rules which mean you may need a license to export works of art or antiques of a certain age and value. And the UK government has the right to defer the granting of an export licence. This deferment is used to delay the export of items deemed of national importance to allow time for funds to be raised to buy them and keep them in the UK. And you saw it in 2005, but otherwise, how often will the public have been able to view it? 
The public in the UK only in 2005, but it has been on loan in the National Gallery of Ireland in Dublin for about six years, actually. This sounds like a terribly naive question, Randall, but are there many great works of art that in private possession are rarely, if ever, seen in public? Oh, yes, lots and lots. There's a slight sort of myth in the art market that all the great works have been found and they're all in museums, mm. but they're not. They Sometimes they can pop up in the most unlikely places, like, for example, uh, a Salvatore Mundi by Leonardo da Vinci, which was found in all, uh, of all places in New Orleans for <laughs> for $1,000. It had been missing for 300 years until it was discovered at an auction house in the United States in 2005. It was a picture in a minor auction house and one that, uh, that I spotted in a catalog together with a colleague of mine, Alexander Parrish, and from that the story began. And then at all these ducal houses, I'm sure you'll have seen, <laughs> just sometimes hanging in the most ridiculously dark corridor, you can find a really astonishing work of art still. Oh, I'd love you to give us an example <laughs> of your going into a house, because I have to confess I have never been, and suddenly noticing something wonderful on a wall. I don't want to betray any confidences. I mean, I do, I do remember having a lovely lunch with the Duke and Duchess once. And as we were leaving the dining room, we were standing right next to a Rembrandt. And it was quite strange because I'm an art historian, and I think they knew that. Uh, but for some reason, we didn't sort of talk about it. And I didn't feel able to go, I can't believe I'm standing in front of a Rembrandt having just had some lovely strawberries. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, no, so these things are out there. But, you know, I think private collectors are often very private about their pictures. And there's all sorts of reasons why you might want to be, from security to modesty to all sorts of things. Are there also examples where the pictures that rich people own are not actually in a house even for them to see, but are banged up in some storage? A lot of us read The Goldfinch and saw the example of, of how art might be kept in storage boxes in Amsterdam, for example. I mean, does that happen a lot? Well, I think it does, yeah. But uh, I think particularly in the modern and contemporary end of the market, I mean, if, if you're talking about my, uh, my ducal friend, um, you know, with old master art, that tends to be on a wall somewhere, like it has been for centuries. Uh, so it will be on display. Uh, it may not be the most uh, overly promoted thing on the visitor route for security reasons or all sorts of other factors, but it will be somewhere visible or known to art historians and curators for an exhibition and so on. But the stuff that really disappears off the radar and gets moved around the world, sometimes for nefarious reasons, is the modern and contemporary stuff. And that's why you have these vast art storage facilities in, in free ports like uh, Geneva, where lots of this sort of just sits in boxes for years and years. But then the other thing to consider, of course, is that uh, it's, it's often said that a private collection just means art stays in storage and nobody ever sees it. But in the UK, for example, I think well over 90% of our national collection of oil paintings is at any one time in a museum store. So Sometimes if a, a picture belongs to a private owner, it may end up being seen more than if it's in a museum. That's a really important point, actually. Now, let's go back to this particular picture. You saw it in the Tate in 2005, and it's been in Ireland. But actually, most of the time, it's not seen. Now, tell us about the current export status of the painting. Where are we now with the export ban and what's going to happen? 
So last year, another export license was applied for, this time for a permanent export license. And so then the process kicks in where a value is set. And if a UK museum wants to raise the money to try and keep it and they're successful, then the picture cannot be exported and the picture must be sold by the private owner to the UK gallery. So the the value was set last year at the very high sum of £50 million. I thought at the time that that would probably be beyond the appetite of most UK museums, given cost of living crisis, wars in Ukraine, inflation and so on and so forth. But the National Portrait Gallery decided to have a go at it, which I think is probably one of the most extraordinary and ambitious attempts ever to try and do something like this by a UK museum. But it's only a reflection of the portrait's importance. And I think it would have been a great shame if nobody had had a go, because this is such a monumentally important work of art in British art history, that if we had just said, because it was so expensive, oh, we're not going to have a go, then that would have basically ended pretty much the whole point of an export system uh, control in the first place. I think we'd be much impoverished for it. Now, tell me in a bit more detail, who is involved? How are we experiencing this campaign? Who's doing it? Well, it's being run by the National Portrait Gallery in conjunction with the Art Fund, who are the the great knights who come and ride to the rescue in, in situations like this and will help lead a campaign. They've been running the campaign with the National Portrait Gallery. And they will be working with bodies, I think, the National Heritage Memorial Fund, perhaps the lottery will get involved, private donors. It looks like this is going to be a complicated situation, not just because of the price, but because it looks like the only way the National Portrait Gallery in London can acquire the picture is to do a a joint bid with an overseas institution. And it's been reported that the Getty Museum in Los Angeles is that institution. I take it from what you're saying that you, as a former art dealer and a considerable arts expert, particularly in this period, you think it's worth it. You think it's worth paying five times as much as Magna paid for it back in 2001 to keep it on display in Britain. Yeah, definitely. Art valuation is, is difficult. And always very subjective. And it changes all the time. And there's various reasons why, in this particular case, it has changed dramatically. But art values generally have gone up uh, significantly, especially for trophy pictures. Just last month in New York, a nice, but not great, not stupendous, not museum quality, I don't think, painting by Rubens made nearly $30 million. The last year before that, a couple of Botticellis have made uh, nearly $100 million. So suddenly these big names big-ticket items are going through the roof. But then I think there's another significant reason why the portrait of Amaya has gone up dramatically, and that is that we may not like to admit it, but back in 2001, and even more recently than that, portraits of people of colour in British art have not really been valued as much as they probably should have done. And the same goes for works by female artists. And there's been this sort of really profound and much overdue, in my opinion, uh, reset in how, in art history, in how we appraise pictures, in in what we value. So back in 2001, I think a prized Reynolds might have been not only the picture of Omai, but a beautiful countess, for example. But now I think we are slightly more discerning in what we're looking for. And part of the reason why the price of Omai has gone up so much is that we are belatedly realising how important these pictures are in our national story, and the fact that there are so few of them. And oh my, he ticks every box. And you could say, well, it's just a result of a fashion at the moment after things like Black Lives Matter or the Me Too movement that we're suddenly, museums are racing to spend all this money on 
pictures by female artists or of sitters uh, of ethnic minorities and it's just a fashion it'll pass but i don't think it will i think what this represents actually is that we've been valuing art for <laughs> many of the wrong reasons for so long up until this moment At the end of March, an official statement indicated that the portrait of Amai will now be saved for the nation. In a highly unusual move, it'll be bought jointly by the National Portrait Gallery in London and the John Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles. The painting will be shown alternately in London and LA. Both museums describe the purchase as a new model of international collaboration. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with the art historian Ben de Grosvenor and, in his final appearance on the podcast, the wonderful David Aronovich. The producer today was Priyanka Deladia, the executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. I hope you're having a lovely bank holiday. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.